Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hey, so glad to see you today. Welcome those of you that are joining us here in the sanctuary. Maybe you're in Auditorium 2. Maybe you're watching online or by way of television or listening through the podcast. Just honored that you would join us today. I want to thank Pastor Keith uh, for jumping in kind of at a, at a short notice last week. And if you weren't here, uh, his message on who is at your table is one that is worth going back and listening to. So you can catch that on our website or uh, Facebook or YouTube. A really good word that I think all of us need to consider in our lives. As uh, if you were here, as he mentioned last week, uh, my mom passed away on November 7th. And uh, she was an extraordinary lady. And if you did not have a chance to know her, I'm sorry. Uh, she was just a really, really special lady. Um, she had a heart attack on the 20th of October. And the night before, I was uh, at, her, at her apartment. And um, she'd gotten into bed. She just wasn't, she was very restless. And I was really concerned. And I, I was standing there and I looked at her and I says, Mom, I... I don't, I don't, I'm worried about you. I don't think you're okay. And she looked at me and she said, I'm okay, you go home. <laughs> Just like a mom should do. And then she looked me in the eye and said, but if I'm not okay, you thank Jesus. Because she knew where she wanted to be. And she knew who her savior was and she knew where her hope was found. And if there's anything that I've picked up in the last few weeks is I want to live my life in that same way. Amen. And so thankful for my mom and the heritage of faith um, that she has given to us. So thankful for a church. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing when you get to preach to the church. It's another thing when the church gets to live life with you. And uh, thank you to so many that just expressed their love, uh, cards and calls and, and meals and uh, your, your just support uh, over these last few weeks. Just thank you so very much. We truly, truly felt your prayers and appreciate that so much. Well, we're in a series of messages that we call Flip the Script, and we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, have been working our way through. Two weeks ago, we got to a point where Jesus is going to give us six very practical examples where he literally, and this is where we get the term, where he flips the script, where he changes it, where he takes it from, and, and he says this each time, you have heard that it was said, but I'm gonna tell you. He's going to change up the way that the world, that culture, that his disciples think. Jesus is teaching his followers that life in the kingdom of God is different than life in the world's kingdom. This is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, look, if you're gonna, if you're gonna live in my kingdom, in God's kingdom, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, then your life will be lived different than in the world's kingdom. And he points this out, that life in God's kingdom is lived from the inside out. Not just what you see on the outside, but changes on the inside. Jesus says it's not enough to just deal with the symptoms, you have to deal with the disease. He's gonna flip the script as we say. Jesus flips the script to focus on inside and not the outside. Why does that matter? Because you can be right on the outside and still be wrong on the inside. Anybody? <laughs> and need God's help. So two weeks ago, we, we started with this, where he says, you have heard it said that you should not murder, but I say to you that you should not be angry. He's gonna take it another layer deeper. He's gonna take it and look at the inside, not just the outside. So two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' guide to anger management, and he gives us, as we said, six of these examples. We've already looked at one. Next week, we'll look at the last three Today we're gonna to look at two, and I think it's really telling that of all the things that Jesus could talk about, he hones in on these two today. We're gonna to cover a lot of ground. We're barely gonna scratch the surface on these topics, some of which we'll come back to later in Matthew, and here's what I know. Some of you will hear this message today and say, it doesn't really apply to me. Some of you will hear this message today and say, it's hard for me to hear. Some of you will say, I'm really glad I heard that. And some of you will say, that's, that's important to where I am right now. And we're just working our way through the book of Matthew, right? So 
So God chooses these things. And this would have been last week's message and then things kind of got changed. So it's not necessarily the sermon you would typically hear for Thanksgiving. But today, if this doesn't necessarily apply to you, come back next week and see what Jesus has for us next. Amen, <laughs> right? Matthew chapter five, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And now he's gonna start the second one. Remember we said he, he would have two of these spots where he flipped the script. First one, he talks about adultery. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Today we're gonna to talk about marriage. And of the six things that Jesus talks about, he takes two of them to hone in on this subject. So I know that for some of us, it might not be as practical as for all of us. For some of us, it might not be as um, pleasant or even painful to talk about as for all of us. But marriage in God's word is at the very heart of our culture and our society, true? And it's important that we hear what he has to say. You know, my, my mom passed, and so we've been looking at a bunch of pictures, both in planning her service, and then you're just going through things. And it's interesting to see how many pictures we have that revolve around weddings, because marriage is such a key thing. There's a really cool old picture of, of when her parents, when my grandparents got married, pictures of when my parents got married, pictures that are cool family pictures from when uh, our, our son Clayton and our daughter Carissa got married. This is my favorite wedding picture of them all though. Yeah. Look at those kids. You're right, he married out of his league. And, uh, but that hair, whew, okay. It's a happy day. And no one comes to that day and says, boy, I wonder, I wonder how soon I can kill this thing. <laughs> I wonder how bad I can mess this up. And what Jesus is going to do for us, though, is he's going to point out some things that will. Now, remember, he's, he's been talking about the Ten Commandments here. And I don't, I don't mean for this to be dramatic, but we're, we're going to kind of work through this scripture and, and look at it from kind of like three different perspectives. And here's the first one. I want to show you some marriage murderers, some things that will take the life from your marriage. And this will certainly apply to those of you that are married, maybe some of you that are about to be, you might even know some, some young couples that are looking to get married that would be good to share this with, maybe for some of you that are hoping to be married. And I, I know that it might not apply to all of us, and it might even be painful for some of us to look at these passages of scripture. One of the commentaries that I found really helpful through this process in studying is by a theologian named John Stott, who has done kind of a landmark work on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I want to quote from him a couple times today. And I, I really, I, I resonated with what he said in this passage and thought it's good for us to read. At the beginning of this, Stott says, I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. He's saying, I'm having a hard time writing about this. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage and almost no tragedy so great as the de degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity for I know the pain which many suffer and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, amen? amen? Intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands 
and right on. And to what Stott says, I say, <laughs> ditto. Because it's not an easy subject for many of us to talk about. And Jesus lists in the passage that we just read what maybe we'll harshly call marriage murderers, but they're things that take life from a marriage. Why, why, why do I say that? Well, here's the deal. When he introduces the subject of marriage to us, he does it as he's talking about creation. Right, he's talking about the days of creation. He's talking about how God is creating things, including people, and then he says this in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter two, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. He says, look, in marriage, something new is created. The two become one. And I, I believe, this is kind of my contention, that at that marriage, when you make those vows, that covenant, that commitment to each other, God literally creates a new home. He creates a new family. Something new is created that is designed to give life not only to you, but to culture and society and to your family. And one of the reasons possibly why scripture says God hates divorce is because divorce takes the life out of something that God intended to bring life. Does that make sense? So that's why he highlights these things here for us. Here's the first one that he mentions. Number one is adultery. And he spells this out for us. It's the seventh commandment. Among supposedly monogamous couples, 23% of men and 19% of women have cheated on their current partner. So this is a very relevant issue and probably one that not much needs to be said about. We know, we accept it kind of culture-wide that this is bad, it's unfaithfulness, it's sin, it's betrayal, and the list can go on and on. And I've had people say to me, well, here, here's the deal. I, I fell out of love with them and fell into love with someone else. And uh, Pastor Peter Jensen would say that you are not falling in love with adultery. You are failing in love. And that you have missed the point of the commitment that you've made. TV and movies and culture seems to oftentimes glorify the act of unfaithfulness Sometimes an affair is celebrated and portrayed as finding real love when the reality is when someone finds themselves in a headlines for unfaithfulness, it's disrepute, it's loss of a reputation, it affects our leaders, our politicians and ministers because we want people that we can trust, do we not? Amen. We want it in public and we want it in our lives. And I can tell you this, I've had people sit on the couch in my office within days of an act of unfaithfulness or confessing something to me decades later and the response is the same. It's shame, it's guilt, it's disappointment, it's loss, it's pain, and it's the price of sin. And Jesus reinforces that commandment that says, steer clear of adultery. But he's not gonna stop there. He takes it one more step, doesn't he? Number two, he talks about lust as something that will take the life out of a marriage. And when he's talking about lust here, he's, he's putting the Pharisees on notice. This is what we're watching him do. Who are the Pharisees? Well, they were the religious leaders of that time who were largely hypocritical. And they were putting all these rules on other people and all these things. And one of the things that they'd figured out was they had said, look, adultery is a bad thing, but as long as you don't enter into the physical act of adultery and you just lust after your neighbor's wife or you just have these sexual inappropriate things in your life, as long as you physically don't commit adultery, then you can still consider yourself holy, technically speaking. Like they were looking for these loopholes to make sexual sin very narrow and to make what was permissive very convenient for them. And Jesus says, not, not like that would happen in our culture, but Jesus says, look, I, I'm gonna draw a different line here. And he says something different. And look, lust is this thing that sometimes we view as kind of a safe sin because we think it just happens in our minds, that it's something that, that is only ours to deal with, when the reality is it causes us to live in a fantasy world that jeopardizes our reality, the Fire Bible, which if you're looking for a good resource to study scripture, uh, is a helpful tool. This is what it says about lust, that lust is not referring to a passing thought 
that may come to your mind about an improper desire that arises suddenly, it's not a sin to be tempted. We know that, right? We will all be tempted. So if you're, if you're breathing, you will be tempted. And there's a good chance that if you have a heartbeat, male or female, this temptation of lust is gonna come your way. The, the sin comes when we allow ungodly thoughts to linger in our minds, to imagine and think about immoral desires. It's like giving approval to them. And what happens is when it takes up residence in our mind, it becomes easier to act it out physically as well, doesn't it? And so this is what scripture says, and this is what the fire Bible says, that the inner desire for ungodly sexual pleasure, if thought upon a great deal and not resisted, is sin. And then he gets to the third one. And the third thing he says will drain the life out of our marriages is divorce. Now, we know what scripture says about divorce, that God hates divorce, that it's not his plan, but Jesus was going one step further. Like there's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21 where Moses says to the people that you can get a certificate of divorce. He's writing largely like to a patriarchal society, right? So he says to the men, you can get a certificate of divorce if your wife has behaved indecently. And then it's just kind of left there. And so what's happened is over time, the different Jewish schools of thought interpreted that in different ways. And so when you get to the time of Jesus, there were a couple of rabbis that the Pharisees followed in their teaching, kind of their commentary, their thoughts on things. One was a rabbi named Shammai, and it was his perspective that, that scripture was viewed from a very conservative standpoint. So when he heard this passage about divorcing a wife because of indecency, what he said was, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, unless she has been unfaithful. And that's gonna be what Jesus is gonna tell us as well. Jesus lines up with that. But there was another rabbi that taught in that time who had a much more liberal idea, and he said that a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. You get that? Honey, I'm sorry, I burned the lasagna. That's it, we're done. Like that was the license that they were given. So you can see why the Pharisees found it much more convenient to follow Hillel instead of Shammai, right? Then there was a guy named Akiba. He was another rabbi. He followed that liberal school of thought. And he said that you could divorce your wife even if the husband found another fairer than she. So if you decide you want to I was gonna say something like trade in for a younger model, but I shouldn't say that. So I'm not gonna say that. That was inappropriate. Take that, take that out. But do you get it? Do you get the point? Like, look, you just, you just say, well, you know what? I just, I, I don't have a feeling for him. I just don't have feelings for her anymore. But there's over here and I got, and ooh, I'm in love kind of thing. And so Jesus is actually addressing this because they had this mindset that if your spouse was not meeting your expectations or if you could find something that you would hold against them, then you could divorce them for any and every reason. And Jesus is calling this out. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, when you have that mindset that is completely non-committal, when you think you can get out of that marriage for any reason whatsoever, you are literally draining the life out of your marriage. Are you with me so far? Okay, because in the last service, either everybody fell asleep or they were afraid to move. <laughs> because this is heavy stuff, right? We're, we're, we're dealing this because Jesus deals with this. Jesus brings it up, and it's important that we look at it. Now look, on this subject, he goes into more detail, which I think is really helpful for us, in Matthew chapter 19. Now we'll eventually get there in Matthew chapter 19, where Matthew 5 we're working our way through the book of Matthew. I will make no promises as to when we'll get to Matthew 19, whether it will be in this decade or not, okay? But we'll get there. But it's good for us to read this to get perspective on how Jesus understands this subject. So Matthew chapter 19, and uh, this is where he talks about this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. So they're looking to push his buttons. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because that's what they understood. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, 
but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then the Pharisees said, well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus maps this out a little bit more for us. And there's a couple of good things for us to note here is that we do believe in scripture that there are some times and situations where God makes license for divorce. One of those, as he says here, is for sexual immorality or, or for adultery. So there are times in scripture when God allows for someone to have a divorce because those vows have been broken through marital unfaithfulness. So one of those reasons is adultery. As a, as a fellowship, we're a part of a group of churches called the Assemblies of God, we've kind of identified three places where we see biblical allowance for divorce. One is adultery, another is abandonment. If someone leaves their spouse, you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. And then another one would be domestic violence or for abuse in those situations. And you kind of see that as a principle throughout scripture, especially in Ephesians five and how we're to love our spouse. And so these three instances for adultery, abandonment and abuse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven, that God wants our marriages to be places where we live in peace. So God does make allowance for those things. And the thing is, this, this is a tough subject to talk about because some of us know the pain of it and some of us know God's feelings on it. All those emotions kind of get jumbled up. I think I've, I've shared with you some of my family's background that my, my parents uh, met and married later in life. They were in their mid-30s. My dad had been previously married, had three kids, went through uh, a... a really uncomfortable divorce, um, met my mom. After they met, they had one child, looked at him and said, he seems perfect, let's stop. And, and so, so, so just joking here. So, but that's my story, right? So my dad previously married, I've got uh, you know, two brothers and sisters, all that stuff, right? So um, one day a lady comes in my office and starts asking me questions about divorce because she was in a really bad spot. And as she was talking, her life and the way that her husband was treating her lined up with these biblical perspectives of when God makes an allowance either for adultery, abandonment, or abuse. It, it, it lined up in those places. And yet as she was trying to kind of talk it out and think through, do I wanna take that step? I found myself becoming very holy. And I found myself sitting there and going, well, God hates divorce. How dare she think about ending this marriage that God has brought? She does not know the script. God says he hates divorce. And that's when the Holy Spirit nudged me and said, hey, buddy, if it wasn't for divorce, you wouldn't even be here. <laughs> so here's the deal. We see what God is saying. What I want you to see is that when we preach a message like this, when we talk about truths from scripture like this, there is the opportunity for the enemy to come in if you have a story that doesn't necessarily match up perfectly with what scripture says, where the enemy might say, well, you blew it and it's over and there's no hope. Or you might start to sense condemnation that comes. And when you sense condemnation, you know that that's not the Holy Spirit that's bringing that. That's a whole nother spirit. And that God can take the most messed up of situations and he can redeem them. Amen? And he can use those things. So that's a really important perspective to see here. And yet we have to see what scripture says about these subjects. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you, I'm reading Matthew chapter 19 and I'm saying to myself, Jesus, did you, did you know that not everybody agrees with the things you're saying here? Because Jesus actually says some things in this passage in Matthew 19 that are pretty unpopular. Did you pick that up? Like he says some things that in the big scheme of things, in the headlines, in the people that we'll often encounter, it might be kind of unpopular. So let me show you a few things here. We don't, we don't have a lot of time to, to stop here, but I, I wanna point this out. Some things that Jesus says here that are a little un, unpopular. Jesus has some unpopular opinions. Here, here's the first one. His unpopular opinions about marriage that people are created male or female. Like he, he really only gives two options. 
And he says that you're created male or female. I just read this week, there's a, there's a form you can fill out in the city of San Francisco where you have over 130 gender options. And the instructions say, check all that apply. This is a lot simpler. And I don't mean to minimize that. I, this is just what Jesus says. Genesis chapter one, verse 27, he's quoting from scripture. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He, he spells it out here. Now I know though, that even for some of you that are sitting here or watching this or listening to this, and, and certainly for other people in the culture, this, this is not comfortable. This is not popular. I'm just a follower of Jesus and he said it. And one of the things he said was that we are created as either male or female. And then he unpacks it a little bit more and he says this, here's a second unpopular opinion. He says that sex is for marriage. And our culture says a lot of other things about sex. But one of the things that the scripture makes very clear is Jesus talks about that the, the, the man and the woman come together and they become one flesh but in the context of what we're reading there, and you see this throughout scripture, is this idea that sexual activity is to be reserved for a husband and a wife. It's to be reserved for marriage. And that's kind of tough because we live in a culture where cohabitation is on the rise and where sexual activity outside of marriage has become a norm. Oftentimes people will say, well, just... It just makes sense for us to live together. Like it's convenient and it's got some financial benefits. It's a whole lot cheaper if we share those expenses. And it, it gives me a chance to just, before, before we make that kind of commitment, we can kind of test the relationship out. In fact, about 23% of people who live together say they do it because they want to test out the relationship. But here's what studies have found that cohabitating before marriage increases, it actually increases your odds of divorce. Because you've already built in this idea that if it doesn't work out, we can just go our separate ways. In fact, they found that married couples have higher levels of relationship satisfaction and trust than unmarried cohabitating relationships. And if we just go on and on with the different research, what you find is that your marriage can be harmed if you live together before the relationship in marriage. And scripture says it this way too about sex being for marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four that the marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And so Jesus makes it very clear in what he says and then as scripture responds, and remember, this is his unpopular opinion, I'm just a follower of him. <laughs> Here's his third one that he gives us in this passage, that marriage is one man and one woman together for a lifetime. That's the biblical definition of marriage. That marriage is one man and one woman together for a lifetime. And yet, that's unpopular because many people believe that you can have a lot of other combinations and options, true? And that's kind of the prevailing message in our culture. In fact, just this week, the Senate considered taking the first steps for what's called the Respect for Marriage Act which basically says whatever combination, whatever options, we'll call it marriage. And many that I've read or have listened to talk about this have referred to it rather as a disrespect for marriage act because it's a disrespect for the biblical idea of marriage. It's even a disrespect for the practical idea of, of how marriage is to work in advancing our society. It's disrespect to what is sensible and what is historical. And one of our greatest concerns about this comes from the challenges that this particular legislation would bring to religious liberties, especially in our educational institutions and churches. And even just this week, we had a, a pretty famous actress who got in a lot of trouble because she was promoting traditional marriage and the, the culture just kind of rises up against that. You, you, you realize that Jesus' opinions are unpopular, right? and yet he's Jesus. So we need to give some real thought to the things that he's saying. Yeah, Chad, I, I know that. But he said those 2,000 years ago. And like, what, what am I supposed to do? Because what do, I, what do I do about my child, or my sibling, or my friend, or myself? Because for some of us, some of us that are listening to this right now, we would disagree 
because of our relationships with others or even the way that we think with some of the things that Jesus says. And how, how do we address that as followers of Jesus Christ who then pick up his unpopular opinions? And one of the things we need to consider is all throughout scripture, we watch Jesus move with grace and truth. Have you ever heard this? So he moves with grace and truth. So he is always addressing other people with love. So he's not afraid to speak the truth because telling someone the truth usually means at its heart that you love them. Agreed, right? Like, look, you, you can tell me a lie and I might love the lie. I might enjoy it until I find out it's a lie. And then when I finally get the truth, I realize that you told me a lie because you didn't care enough about me to tell the truth. So at some point, it's critical that we speak the truth, but that we do it with grace and that we do it with love and that we understand that there is a culture, that there is a world where these are difficult and unpopular opinions and that we start with love. Some people wanna lead with the truth. That's just unkind. Because <laughs> if you don't have love, then you just use the truth as a club. And you speak the truth in love and then you do your best to continue to show that love and you continue to lead with that love. Chad, though, like the world's changing. And people are gonna look back and see that culture has changed and the world has changed. And do you wanna be stuck in the past? Like, don't you wanna be on the right side of history? Like, and it may be that if you hold to some of these unpopular opinions of Jesus, that there will be people now, and maybe even for some future generations, who will say you're on the wrong side of history. But I would rather be on the wrong side of history for a while than find myself later on the wrong side of eternity. Amen. German Museum has a painting by Dutch artist Pierre Mondrian. He was an abstract painter, and that's it. Abstract's one word, isn't it? They call it a painting but it's basically a canvas and tape. It's called New York City One, was the name of the painting, because he was trying to um, like capture the height and the texture and the depth and the, the different looks of looking at the skyscrapers in New York City. I see a pair of pajamas that my kids used to have. <laughs> but that's a whole, that's a whole nother story. Painted it, did, did this, whatever, whatever this is. And some of you that have an appreciation for art, I'm so sorry. <laughs> 1941, and it's famous. It's like a, it's a pretty unique, famous abstract painting from 1941. And then recently, the curator of the museum where it's at was doing some research on that painter, and she noticed in a, in a picture from 1944, so three years after the, the, this picture was made, in 1944, she noticed that it was on an easel, but it was the other way around. So for 77 years, this painting is hung upside down. Oh, now I get it. No, I don't. So they asked her, were well, you gonna turn it around? And she says, we can't because it's adhesive tape that's on there. And gravity has had it like that for 77 years. If we turn it around, the, 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 the weakness, the degeneration of that tape is gonna start to fall apart and gravity is gonna cause it to fray and unravel. So we can't make it right because then it'll fall apart. And the truth is, our culture has been looking at sexual norms and morality upside down. And if we don't make it right, it's gonna fall apart. And so many times we look at it and we think, well, that's right, that's the way that it should be, but God's word says, no, you, you got it all backwards. There's a different way to do these things. So with that in mind, can I wrap us up with something more positive? We've talked about things that take life from our marriages. And, and listen to this. When we talk about adultery, we're really talking about stealing, aren't we? Because you take something that's not yours. And when you talk about lust, you're actually talking about coveting. And when you talk about divorce, 
In the marriage world, that's akin to murder. Like these things are really an assault on the Ten Commandments. So let's talk about the positive side of this because this is what Jesus is trying to help us see. I wanna talk about some marriage makers. What can make your marriage last? What can make it strong? What can make it healthy? Not just what can take the life from it. Let's talk about what might give the life to it. Let's go back to our passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus spells this out. And I would say to you, a good antidote for this, number one, is trust. The first marriage maker is making sure that you build and develop trust in your marriage. Because here's what I've seen, years of interacting with couples in, in, in difficult, tough, even crisis situations. One of the things that becomes so dangerous in a marriage is when you lose this element of trust. Because when that trust is gone, that's when things can begin to fall apart. Where's trust come from? Well, trust comes from love because you love that other person and you put them first. You choose to respond in love and you live in a way that you can be trusted. It's hard for me to trust someone if I don't believe they have my best interests in mind. True? True? <laughs> right? And how do I do that? Well, I show that person I love them because I put them ahead of me. I look for ways to share that love and give that from them. The, the partner to that then is not just love, but trust also comes from humility. Because if I'm gonna put their needs ahead of mine, that means that I have to pull myself back in that relationship, that I put the other person first. And that's a key thing. We, we love that passage in Ephesians chapter five that says, wives, submit to your husbands. By we love that, I mean men. And it's not one you usually pick up on a plaque at Hobby Lobby, is it? <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands. The beauty of that passage of scripture, though, is the next verse that says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The Chad Gilligan version of that is, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, die for your wives. Like, it's all about putting the other person first, even if it means scaling yourself back. And that trust is key in this. I'll, I'll tell you a warning sign that I've seen so many times where we're, we're, you know, we're, we're in a meeting or we're talking, we're having a conversation about what happened. And if one spouse goes for that other spouse's phone and they freak out, what are you doing? What do you want? What do you want to know? Like the reality is that's a symbol that there is something that is not trusting in that relationship. Your spouse should know your passwords. They should know what's going on in your world. They should know where you are and who you're communicating with, not because they have control over your life, but because you know the most important thing in that relationship is trust. Only one time in my marriage can I remember taking Rhonda's phone and watching her freak out. She was up to no good planning a surprise party for me, which only built that trust. Like, hold on to that trust. You know where else it comes from? It comes from forgiveness. Because the reality is we will fail each other. And there is no trust without forgiveness. At some point, you're gonna come home later than you planned, or you're gonna forget to take out the trash, or you're gonna speak without letting the Holy Spirit filter your words. Or like Rhonda has to deal with, sometimes you'll just be a spouse that's selfish. Don't tell them. Here's what you need to know. Your spouse is a sinner. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Who is married to a sinner. <laughs> the greatest expression of God's grace in my life, outside of the work that Jesus did for me on the cross, has been through the love and the grace and forgiveness that my wife Rhonda has given to me over the years. And that builds trust. Let's go back to what Jesus says. We, we, gotta, we gotta keep moving. Matthew chapter five, he then goes on, like he, he talks about adultery, then he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And let's be clear here, he's not just talking to men. You know that, right? Because that same temptation comes to women 
And he's not just talking to married people, he's talking to all of us about a subject that is out there in our culture in full force of sexual lust and desire. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay. Um, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In the early years of the church in the first centuries, there were times when people did that. Like they plucked out an eye and they cut off a hand and there was literally a church council where they had to say, he was, he was exaggerating. Like he's making a point here. And he wants us to see what he's talking about. Here, number two, he's talking about purity. And he's talking about going to great lengths to maintain that purity. Why is purity so important? We've talked about a lot of negatives here. Let me give you a positive. Purity protects the great God-given gift of sex. And so many times when we talk about sex, in the church in particular, we have this idea of sex, bad. Right, and we just we, we, we push the idea away when actually it is a gift that God has given to us for intimacy, for procreation, and for pleasure within the confines of our marriage. And it is a powerful, powerful gift. That's why Solomon says to his son that he's writing this to in Proverbs chapter five, he says this, Proverbs chapter five, verse 18, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. He's saying, son, this is a good thing. Like hold on and guard this gift which is why scripture says purity starts in your mind. That's why Jesus says, look, if, if you're having this issue, not just with physical adultery, but it's going on in your heart, you need to be aware of this. It is always imagination before intimacy. That's why we talk about taking thoughts captive. The problem with, with lust and releasing purity is that it puts you in a fantasy world that will either pull someone else into the destructive relationship or bring destruction to you with the season of sin that is a fantasy and not a reality. And lust often involves porn. It might involve a coworker, a friend. It doesn't matter if you're married or unmarried. What it does, and I've heard this over and over again, is it only sets you up for disappointment and shame and pain. And just so we're on our guard, oftentimes the things Jesus is talking about here is purity, often start in a way that doesn't seem sexual at all. There was a marriage therapist that I read in this process that says, I've never encountered unfaithfulness that did not begin, sorry, I lost my place here. I never encountered unfaithfulness that did not begin with some kind of emotional attachment. In most cases, never with the thought of unfaithfulness in mind. Even text and email attention can lead quickly in the wrong direction. And look, I, I don't know all of us but I would bet that for the vast majority of us, this subject of purity is one that we have wrestled with or we will wrestle with in the near future because we live in a hyper-sexualized world. Do we not? And I've heard some of you say to me, Chad, it's no use. I've tried. It's just too difficult for me to live a life that's pure. And the reality is at some point, we have to come to a place of honesty where we say purity in our minds and in our actions may be a struggle for us, and we come to a point of repentance where we truly say to Jesus, I need something to change. And then we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. John Stott says this, I, 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 wanna, I wanna go back and quote him again, because not only does purity start in our mind, but purity requires a radical. Purity is going to require a radical action on your part. That's why Jesus says, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. He's saying that to say, look, whatever you have to do to steer clear of this, do it. It requires radical action. Stott says Jesus was quite clear about it. It's better to lose one member and enter life maimed, he said, than to retain our whole body and go to hell. That is to say, it's better to forego some experience this, this life offers in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It's better to accept some cultural amputation in this world 
than risk final destruction in the next. Of course, this teaching runs clean counter to modern standards of permissiveness. It's based on the principle that eternity is more important than time and purity than culture. And that any sacrifice is worthwhile in this life if it is necessary to ensure our entry into the next. We have to decide quite simply whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or Jesus Christ. Impurity requires a radical action. And there's one thing that I think just practically we got to keep in mind that if you go to slippery places, you will slide. <laughs> so know that you have to be real with yourself and about temptation and what, when, where, who you're most likely to be tempted and then find ways to fill other things. There is such a thing as divine distractions, isn't there? That if you know the places where you're subject to temptation, that that's when you make sure you come back to scripture or that you listen to something, a music or, or a teaching or something that's gonna help you to process that. To have somebody in your world that you can call up and you can go or you can text them and you can say, look, I'm struggling today. Will you pray with me, that accountability? Because purity is an expression of love to Jesus and to your spouse. Purity is not just God saying you can't have fun it's actually saying, Jesus, I love you and your plan more than what this world has to offer. And I love my spouse or maybe even my future spouse more than what can be offered today. So stay in love with Jesus and stay in love with your spouse and stay in suspicion of yourself. Because if Jesus said that we could be tempted in that way, it's because he knows that for any one of us, that temptation could come. There's 2,000 islands in a, in a chain in, in New York State called the Thousand Islands, and, and it's Wellesley, New York, and one of them is this tiny little island that was bought by the Seisland family in the 1950s, and they've nicknamed it Just Room Enough Island. I wonder why. They bought this little island, and they built a house on it, and they kind of made it just the right size. I didn't, you might not know this, but there are certain classifications of what is, is actually an island. Like it has to stay out of the water all year long. It has to have at least one tree. And you can trust me because I know a lot about islands. My last name's Gilligan. And so they... They wanted this little place, so they bought that little patch of land, and they built a house there. And I don't know about you, but there's days where I wouldn't mind living there. Anybody else? <laughs> and when God created marriage, he said, you know what? It's just room enough for the two of you. And anything else that you bring in that compromises sexual purity will either squeeze out other things of value or bring destruction to that place. Chad, isn't that confining? No, I think it's liberating. Look at the view. And you don't have to worry about all the craziness that's out there happening around you. He, he wants you to live on this space that's just room enough for you to enjoy all the blessings he wants to pour out. And I had a guy come up to me after that service and said, it's just room enough island, but are you sure I can live there with all the many moods my wife has? <laughs> she laughed, she laughed, she laughed. But it raises a good question. When you're uh, in a space like that, doesn't it get uncomfortable at times? Which real quick takes us to the last thing I want you to see. Number three, and let's go back to Jesus. He says this, Matthew chapter five, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's the third thing that we see. Number three, it's commitment. If you wanna make a marriage that's healthy and strong that lasts, it's trust, it's purity, and ultimately, it's commitment. Remember, Jesus is writing to people who are saying, she burns the lasagna or she doesn't look so good anymore, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna trade her in. 
Jesus says, no, 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 no. Marriage is, is commitment. I mean, you live out your marriage like divorce is not an option. Now look again, we've already covered there are times when a spouse breaks vows or if you or your family are in danger, then that's a whole different story. But the norm in scripture is this, that you, you live out your marriage like divorce is not an option. A friend of mine who was a mentor to me all through high school, just before we got married, gave me some of the best advice I've ever been given. He said, decide that the word divorce will not be in your vocabulary. Because I've known couples that anytime they get frustrated with each other, they just go, well, maybe we ought to get a divorce. Maybe we should just be divorced. And every time they do that, they chip away at the foundation of that trust and that purity and that commitment. Decide that the word divorce won't even be in your vocabulary. And can I encourage you with this? Guard against contempt. There's a researcher named John Gottman who believes that he can, within 90% accuracy, tell if a couple is going to get a divorce or not just by interacting with them. Because he's learned through the way they speak to each other and their body language to pick up what's going on. And he says the number one indicator that a couple is headed for divorce is contempt. Because when you begin to treat your spouse with contempt, it says, I'm better than you and I don't respect you. It is destructive to the relationship and they've even found that couples who are contemptuous of each other are often more likely to suffer from infectious illness. Isn't that interesting? Like it chips away at who you are. And what do they say? Familiarity breeds, <laughs> because it's easy for us to check out on the people that we check in with the most. So if you find that you are making your spouse the target of contempt that's made them to feel despised or worthless, that you disrespect them or mock them with sarcasm, if you use hostile humor, name calling, mimicking, or body language such as eye rolling and sneering, then maybe it's a good time to go, am I just chipping away at this thing? When Jesus says I should be committed, how do I do that, Chad? Well, maybe the first step is to focus on we and not me. Because too many times, the problem is I start focusing on myself, on my needs, on where I've been done wrong. My focus is all on me, which chips away at what is supposed to be we and that beautiful relationship. A friend of mine recently lost his spouse after 62 years of marriage. I'd watched them. They loved each other. You saw it in the way they talked to each other, that they cared for each other. Somebody asked him, said, 62 years, what's the secret? How'd you do it? Rolled right off his tongue. Never go to bed angry. <laughs> Don't let that anger, that contempt, take a foothold. It's a fascinating story about a guy named Colin Turnbull who was a sociologist who went and studied like remote cultures and he went and studied what's known as the Ik people in Uganda. And uh, it's a fascinating study of, of the things that he thought he got right that he actually got wrong. It's just, it's just kind of interesting in the process. But one of the things that they noticed was that Turnbull spent two years living among this group of people and he wanted to learn their language, but, but whether it was innocence or whether it was just you know, kind of hubris on his part or whatever, he learned the, how they would greet each other, but he began, instead of when he would walk into a room or when he would meet people, instead of using the greeting, he would use a reply. So instead of walking in a room and saying, hello, how are you? He'd walk in a room and go, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Could you imagine somebody walking into Thanksgiving this week and they just walk in and they go, hey, I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. Never even asking about anybody else. Now, whether he was just full of himself or just had a bad teacher, I don't know. But that's the way a lot of us treat our marriages. As we walk in the house and we go, I'm good, thank you. We walk into relationships, we walk into conflict, we walk into challenges, and we focus just on me and not on we. And when it comes down to it, we're only interested in if I'm good or not, not if we're good or not. Does that make sense? Maybe we need to shift our thinking in some way because Jesus has made it so clear to us the great value that marriage has. Thanks for your patience. Th thanks for listening. If this didn't apply to you, 
I know where we're going next week, so come back. It's going to get all of us. But for the husbands and wives in this room, those that hope to be, or those that are in a difficult season in particular, hear what Jesus says. He gets six tries to show you how to live in his kingdom. And he invests two of them on this subject of marriage because it is so central to the foundation, the establishment of God's kingdom. Years ago, they made a switch in how they produced nickels in the United States. They put a buffalo on the back of them. But before the buffalo was on the back of them, there was the head of Lady Liberty. And just before they made the switch, somebody made five rogue copies of the Liberty nickel. And they went out into circulation. And because they're so rare, they're treasured, they're coveted, they're, they're wanted, and they have incredible value. And each one of the five has a nickname because they've been tied back to the person that was the collector that had the nickel at, at some point or another. And one in particular is called the Walton nickel. And uh, this guy whose last name was Walton had it for years. He displayed it, he treasured it, he had it out there. He'd have it at coin shows, all this kind of stuff. And then he died in a car accident. And shortly thereafter, someone convinced his family that it was a counterfeit. And so they took the Walt nickel and stuck it in a closet for years. For years. Great value, but disregarded, dismissed, disrespected. Until at some point it was found and it was authenticated and it was put back out there for what it was. And just recently, the Walt nickel, five cents, sold for $4.2 million because someone finally realized the value that it had. Can I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? And we've already talked about it. Jesus can redeem any circumstance and he can bring healing to any heart. And if you need something from him today, Right now, would you just ask him? Would you ask him for hope? Or would you ask him for healing? Or would you ask him just for his presence in your life? But I want to focus this last prayer on our husbands and on our wives. And for some of you, familiarity has bred contempt. And the world has tempted you to dismiss purity for a fantasy. And some of you have watched trust erode in your relationship. And others of you have worked so very, very hard to build that trust, that purity, that commitment. Whatever it might be, I want to challenge you right now. Do not let the invaluable gift of a spouse that God has given to you be something that you dismiss, disregard, disrespect, and just kind of push off into the closet of your mind. But would you value your husband? And would you value your wife? Would you hold on to the things that Jesus has said to us? And watch the blessing and the value that he can bring to your homes today. Jesus, thanks for your unpopular opinions. And thank you for a teaching from your word that reminds us of the incredible gift of marriage that you have given. Lord, for some of us, just talking about this is difficult and painful. Lord, for those of us, would you, would you bring grace right now? Bring your peace and your presence. Help us to know that you understand you're with us. And Father, I pray for the engaged couples in this room. I pray for the husbands and wives that are watching. I pray for the strong marriages and for the ones that are falling apart at the seams. Jesus, that you would help us to value our spouses, to see them as the treasure that you've given, that you would help us to build trust, to maintain purity, and Father, to hold on to a commitment 
that blesses our homes, that builds healthy generations and shows the world what Jesus can do in the lives of his people. Lord, some of us need healing today. And with love and humility, we need to take steps towards reconciliation, towards forgiveness, towards hope. Lord, would you meet us along the way and do what only Holy Spirit you can do in our lives. We pray for spiritual breakthrough. We pray for relational healing. God, we pray for miracles to happen in homes because you're a God who's in the miracle business. So fathers, we go from here, would you go with us? Would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.